Welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. I'm Nelson Yap, editor of APJ. My guest today is Ben Martin-Henry, Head of Analytics Pacific at Real Capital Analytics. Welcome, Ben Martin-Henry, uh, to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. Hello, Nelson. Good to be here. And uh, Ben, tell us a bit about RCA Analytics and tell us a bit about yourself as well. Sure. So RCA was actually founded about 20-odd years ago by um, Robert White. And whilst we have always had a presence in Australia, or at least for the last 15 years, we did recently set up an office down here about six months ago. Um, so for those of you who don't know a lot about RCA, we pride ourselves on offering the most comprehensive sets of commercial real estate intelligence data out there on a, on a single platform. So, you know, we can help source opportunities to help you pitch for your business and understand the deals that are that are in, uh, in the Australian market. And that's really what the founders set up the business for, was to just create a bit more transparency in the, in the deal side of the, the commercial property world. So me, myself, I've actually used RCA before I joined the company. I was at CBS in my previous role for about five years covering um, capital markets research and also uh, sort of spearheaded the built-to-rent platform um, over there as well. So I'm sure you'll start picking me about questions on built-to-rent later on, Nelson. So Definitely. I, I hope I still remember those those days. Even though they weren't that long ago, you do, <laughs> you do seem to forget a lot at the moment with all that's happening in the world. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the world's very COVID-centric right now. <laughs> it is, yeah. It is, yeah. So that's pushed a lot of knowledge out of my brain and just focusing on COVID, COVID, COVID at the moment. <laughs> yes. COVID, da- COVID data analysts uh, are having a field day these days. <laughs> they are, aren't they? Yeah. It's, it certainly has made um, commercial property a bit more interesting, though. For, mm. for years, all I was talking about is, yeah, yields are compressing, still compressing, longest ever compression cycle. Yep, still compressing. Mm. Um, buying office is great. Yields are compressing. Now, oh, it's all up in the air. You got to, you got to think a bit more and look for opportunities <laughs> and see what's going on. It's all changed. So it's, it's, it's at least it's interesting, I suppose. You know, we got to find positives in these situations. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, at one stage, uh, well, as uh, an editor and journalist with the Australian Property Journal, it was at one stage, it was just, okay, who has got good news story? Oh, sorry, who has bought an office building or something that we can report? Oh, it's pretty much the same thing again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Compressing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the topic on everyone's uh, mind right now is COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But you've got statistics to show that despite the COVID restrictions, uh, uh, investment transactions are up in Asia Pacific and Australia. Yeah, they are indeed. So it's been it's been a bit interesting really what's been what's been happening over the last couple of years. So I mean there's no doubt COVID had a massive impact on volumes last year. I think in Australia they were down about 50% in sort of Q2, Q3, which translated into a year end total of again down about 50%. But they have started to pick back up. Um, and I think the Asia Pacific region seems to be um, picking up a bit faster than um, say Europe and the US. Although there are pockets of serious outperformance in the US, but focusing on APEC in particular, uh, yep. So volumes are definitely up on last year, probably mm. around probably 10, 15% at the moment. Um, still a little bit down on um, first year 2019. So what I'm finding at the moment is comparing volume levels to 2020, it's, it's throwing up all kinds of weird numbers. You know, you look at places like Adelaide retails up 450% and Perth offices up 600% just because nothing happened last year. So yeah. it's really throwing things out of whack. So I'm starting to compare stuff to how it was, you know, pre COVID 
you know, those good old days back in 2018 and 2019. <laughs> they seem and like lot, a long time ago. They yeah. do, don't they? <laughs> they do. So volumes are, you know, for Australia in particular, we're about probably about six, 7% down on H1 in 2019. Right. So there's still a little bit of a way to go for sure. But the good news is, yeah, look, things are bouncing back. Um, we are seeing a bit more activity in all sectors, which is interesting. Mm. Um, the thing that I'm finding with Australia is though, so the way we can play global markets, we use a $10 million US threshold. And in that case, we're, we're shooting the lights out compared to last year, we're about 45, 50% up if we just use that deal threshold. So that's how we compare global markets. But in Australia, we recently lowered that deal threshold to capture some of the smaller smaller deals um, to now to $1 million. Right. So if we include those $1 million, we're still about 15% down on H1 2019. It seems to be in this smaller end of space that deals are struggling to, to get closed. And it, that certainly felt that way last year where you're looking at deals in sort of around the $10 million mark and, and below where buyers wanted a, a much bigger discount than sellers were willing to offer. Right. Whereas okay. you didn't really have that in the bigger end of space. Buyers and sellers were happy to agree on a 5% discount to book value or just around book value, which, you know, depending on the asset class is in a sense, a bit of a discount. So a premium office building in Sydney selling in January, 2019 compared to 2020, you're probably paying a 15 to 20% increase on book value. Whereas you get a mid 2020 at book value, it's at book value, but you know full well that had you bought that 12 months ago, you'd have to pay overs to secure that asset. Mm. So I think that's why we sort of saw a bit of um, um, a bit more, a bit more pressure in the smaller end of town, and not so much pressure on the larger on the larger deals. So that trend has certainly continued this, this year, and I, I don't really think it's going to change too much either. And why is that uh, the case with uh, this in the smaller end of the deals where they, you know, you're saying you're seeing that disparity or the challenge in sellers and buyers coming, you know, meeting that middle mark and agreeing to that that sale? I just think they're more price sensitive, more price conscious in, in that area. So if you're only looking at, I say only, I'm not doing it, but if you're looking at deals of about $2 million, it means that's the area you play in. So you can't just jack another 15% on top of that because that's a lot of money for you. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're looking at buildings of a billion dollars, you have more I suppose you have more money at your disposal. So you mm. can, if necessary, if you really want to secure the asset, you can pay over. And I just don't think you have that flexibility in the smaller space at the moment. Mm. So, but it, looking at across the different markets and the different sectors, um, where are investors putting their money in? Oh, you know full well the answer to that question. It is industrial. <laughs> it's yes. all anyone is talking at at the moment. And it is, it's, yeah, it's, it's just going gangbusters industrial. Mm. It's it's crazy how much money is being is pumped into that sector at the moment. Um, and look, this isn't exactly a new trend. And I think that's what we've really seen from, from COVID is people forget that some of this stuff was already happening and COVID has merely accelerated it. Yes. So industrial is definitely the case. Everybody wanted to buy industrial, really wanted to buy into the whole online retailing and even um, online grocery shopping. Um, mm. That was already happening, but COVID really boomed that. So we're all shopping online more. Our penetration rates have really gone up compared to what they were 18 months ago. Depending on who you read, I think it was around 10% right. of our of, with online pe retail penetration. Now, I don't know what, to, to probably 18, 20% or something like that. People are getting a bit more comfortable with getting their groceries delivered, which means that we need more cold storage warehousing space, for example. 
Yes. And of course, we need more distribution warehouses and last mile distribution warehouses. So there's so much money being thrown at industrial. You just look at the, the milestone portfolio, obviously, to that um, went for, you know, again, depending on who you read, $3.8 billion. That's, mm. a, that's a big chunk of change to throw at industrial. So obviously, you know, it speaks to the, the confidence that people have in the sector. Mm. Um, and yeah, look, it's, it's, it's fun to analyze. I'm getting a bit bored of talking about industrial, but it is kind of fun <laughs> to analyze, particularly when you get little bits of little, little nuggets. And one I found last, last quarter was that, so that this in Q2, Australia posted the strongest ever industrial quarter. Again, no real surprise, but what it did do without strip volumes for offers and retail combined. Wow. So I looked at that, I looked back in history and it had never happened before until 12 months ago and this and this quarter so it's yeah. just never happened before and then suddenly we have it twice in 12 months it's like wow yeah. that really speaks to the the desirability of the industrial sector at the moment it's it's crazy <laughs> and what we're seeing there is industrial yields are now declining uh, oh, uh yeah. because i think i looked at the data that you uh that you published and industrial yields not so long ago and we're seven eight percent yeah <laughs> and where are they now oh yeah so indeed i mean we're looking at Sub fours for some assets. Wow. I think I saw the other day one went for three and a quarter, three and a half, and that's you know these are on average. I th I think we're looking at around four and a half. Yeah, sure. But in order to get to that average, there's obviously deals that are trading at you know threes, and it's it's crazy. I have a I have a chart. I wanted to break down um, yields by deal tier mm. um, for the previous report, looking at deals you know sub ten million, ten to a hundred, hundred million, just to see across the asset classes if there was any kind of different trends between the two price brackets. Funnily enough, for industrial, no, nah, all going down, significant compression. Sure, a little bit more in the in the bigger the bigger space, but either way, there's significant compression in that in that space. And you know, it certainly is a heating up market. And there's, I know there's a lot of discussion about whether or not industrial is overpriced. And you know, people tell me, well, if you've got so many underbidders for portfolios, how can it be underpriced? People are willing to pay for it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a valid point. Yes, yeah. continue to try and buy them. And I see uh, we reported uh, just recently that Singaporean company bought an out of cold storage facility. So mm. it's it's not just the local institutional uh, groups. It's overseas investors. It's a whole cohort that are now chasing industrial. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, particularly in, in, in the um, offshore market, for sure. So what, what we saw in the first half of the year was that over 50% of offshore buyers picked up industrial assets. No. So they, they generally target office and office still was a, you know, a big target, probably, you know, 40% of deals were, were in the office space, but it really is that industrial side that um, that's seeing a lot more activity from all investors, but particularly offshore investors. Domestics were a bit more evenly split. Um, it, quite nice, actually, a lovely bit of market symmetry. It was about 30, 30, 30 across mm -hmm. the, the three core sectors, which was really quite handy. Um, but for <laughs> offshore, no, look, it's just... It's just purely industrial they're looking at, and maybe a little bit of little bit of office, and absolutely no retail. They don't want to touch retail at all at the moment. Mm. So that's the interesting trend. Whereas you've got retail, uh, you've see, uh, we've seen retail transactions increase uh, in according to your report. So, but it's not the internet or offshore investors that are uh, accounting for those. No, absolutely. Um, for me, the most interesting thing so far this year is that resurgence in the retail space because it. I mean. Obviously, Australia's retail sector, it's endured some well-documented structural and cyclical headwinds over the last few years, Yes, which meant that a lot of in investors just simply shied away from the, like, now too hard basket, we'll, we'll ignore that. But recently, we've seen an awful lot of um, investors come back to this space. And this is despite the struggles that COVID-19 has obviously had on, on the sector. Hmm. Even ones like sub-regional 
um, sub-regional centers, which I remember we did a we did a report in my previous company where we called sub-regional assets the, the middle child of the shopping centers <laughs> space because nobody wanted them. They were just being left, um, left alone. But the first half of the year, we saw more sub-regional assets transact than we saw in all of 2020 and double what we saw in the same period in 2019. Mm. And it's interesting that that particular sector is, is going gangbusters at the moment. I mean, I know you see a lot of media reports about <clears throat> big box retail like Bunnings and obviously large format retail in the form of homemaker centers. They're obviously killing it because we can't go anywhere as a, yes. as a people. So we have money to not necessarily burn, but we're, we're spending money on different things. Mm. And obviously the government has sort of home builder grants, for example. So people, homeowners are spending on improvements and that obviously boosts the performance of those, those centers. But sub-regionals have struggled for the last few years because one of their main anchor tenants has been those DDSs, the discount department stores, the yes. Targets, the Kmarts and Big Ws. And we know they have struggled over recent years because of the, the influx of offshore brands like Uniqlo, Zara, H&M, mm. and also the online retail penetration increasing. So we haven't seen a lot of activity in, in that space. But this year, there seems to be a fair amount going on. And whether that's just a bit of a blip, I don't know. And the reasons behind it, not entirely sure. There's probably a couple of reasons, but it's interesting that this is happening at, at a time when there's a lot of, there's so much discussion about how bad the retail sector has been impacted by COVID. And who are the players or the, the groups of uh, prior profiles for sub-regionals? Well, they're mostly domestic, if not all. There was a mm-hmm. couple of JVs um, with offshore parties, which I think is the only real retail play we'll see from offshore investors in the, in the, in the short term is that they will be partnering up with local investors because it's it's harder to kick the tires on a retail asset if you can't physically be here. You don't necessarily have that issue with a, a premium office building. You know what it is. It's a premium office building. It's it's going to be good. You don't mm. necessarily have to inspect it in such great detail. But for, for retail, particularly sub-regional, you do. Um, so I know that Savills IM, for example, did a JV with Eleanor Investors mm. on a uh, retail uh, neighborhoods up in, um, I think it was near Newcastle, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and these aren't exactly trading it they're not cheap. So they're, they're still trading at sort of $150 million there or thereabouts. So this isn't like we're just taking a, a little punt to see how it works out. We're mm-hmm. spending a decent amount of, of change on it. So it is more those sort of opportunistic investors, I'd say, that are looking at the space. Because I guess there's a, there's a couple of things you can do with a, a sub-regional asset. Um, you can try and make it work. You know, you can re, revamp it, bring in new stores, change it up, things like that to try and get it going. But if it doesn't, if you can't really bring it to fruition, you've still got a massive piece of land at a relatively cheap value um, that still has an income stream. So if you do have development ideas for it, whilst you're formulating these ideas, you still have an income stream coming in for that asset as opposed to a piece of land where you don't have any income attached to it at all. So there is obviously a redevelopment play. But I guess the other thing is where these sub-regions are located are in obviously regional towns as well. Um, And people aren't, well, I'm not saying, I don't believe people are leaving major cities in their droves, but we do know there has been a bit of creep to more regional areas. So there's population growth in these regional areas and the sub-regional assets are, are servicing these communities. So with stronger population, you would think there'll be more retail spend. So maybe maybe investors are taking a bit of a punt on the, sort of the more medium-term um, performance of regions. Okay, great. Let's take a short break. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. So I suppose the next thing is, well, prices are going up for industrial. Is it, will industrial overtake retail and become the new retail? Uh, 
It's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, possibly. Um, let me give you an example on, on market shares, for example. Mm. So our long-term average for market share, so um, over the last 20 years or so, office is around 46%, retail is about a 30 and industrial a quarter. Mm-hmm. In the COVID era, so let's just call the last 18 months, the COVID era, industrial has jumped from 25% of the market to 42% of the market. Wow. So it not only overtook retail, it outstripped office as well. And that's a big thing because office is always the perennial number one market, of course, globally. Yes. And, it, you know, to be honest, it probably will be over a long-term period as well. Hmm. But in re- recent times, 42%, I wouldn't be surprised if that jumps to 50% for this year. That's that's a massive jump. So I think you can safely say that industrial has certainly overtaken retail. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's knocking on knocking on the office door. I don't think the office sector will let them in, but it, it's, you know, <laughs> It's it's a big increase in a short period of time, and one of the one of the big reasons for that is it's becoming far more institutionalised. Yes. See, Twenty years ago, industrial wasn't particularly institutionalised. There were just small plays, private private firms, a couple of big ones, of course, but mostly private. So having holding one or two assets, five or six assets. But in recent years, we've seen more institutions get into that space, and we can see that looking at our numbers as well, because um, single asset market share generally is around eighty percent. 70, 80% in any one mm-hmm. year. But over, since 2017, the volume of entity and portfolio transactions in the industrial space has increased dramatically. And so they're about even at the moment for 2021. It's about a 50-50 split. So that's a big change. Mm-hmm. And that's because you're seeing institutional investors buy portfolios because the, pardon the pun, but the best way to build scale is to not build scale. It's to, <laughs> it's to buy scale. So yes. we're seeing assets being bought in bulk. And that, again, speaks to the fact that it's institutional investors that are getting into the space. And it, I, I, a lot of it, particularly, I, I've looked around, is you're right. It was the private, uh, I suppose, family development groups. And they, they're not that small. They're a few hundred million dollars. But they were hmm. the main players um, in the industrial space. And institutions have always turned to offices and retail yeah. centers. So now where I suppose we're in this COVID period right now. Um, so industrial is emerging, is the darling. So is it structural or structural change that's going to stay or something that we're probably after COVID will see industrial demand sort of, you know, taper? I think we'll see demand taper purely mm. because you can't keep running this hot. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough market. There's not enough product to keep market running this hot. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think it'll fall by the wayside though, because again, for me, COVID simply accelerated some trends and industrial is certainly one of those trends and that Australia's online retail penetration rate was quite low compared to um, notable counterparts, US, UK, probably 18, 20%, but particularly Mm -hmm. APAC, we're well below APAC levels. So there was plenty of room to grow that space. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely a need for more retail, sorry, more um, online distribution warehouses, more last mile distribution centers as well. So possible mm-hmm. conversions from retail to last mile industrial. There's plenty of that. So there is a big structural shift that is taking place and it has been taking place for the last five or six years. I don't think that's going to change. That's only going to be a boom for the sector. But this whole cyclical shift that we have with COVID, you know, I hope that things will start to get back to a new normal, I suppose, mm-hmm. in the coming years where COVID is not so much of a so much of an impact. But look, a lot of people got used to the fact that they can have everything delivered to them. They don't have to go to the supermarket. They don't have to go to, to I don't know, Target or whatever to pick up clothes. So people got used to it. And I, yes. I think that trend is, is here to stay. Um, 
I personally like to go grocery shopping. I like to fill my avocado, pick my own <laughs> banana, pick my own cheese, things like that. Yes. I don't like it when there's, you know, when something's not available, so they substitute it without, you know, giving me the option of picking what I want. That's just not for me. And I'm sure there's many people that feel differently to me and mm-hmm. many people that feel the same. But at the moment, we're forced to do these things. And I think once that need to have to do that diminishes, then I would expect that the, the industrial space will, will also taper off. But I, I don't think it's going to go back to how it was 20 years ago, nothing like that. Because it's mm. still, fundamentally, it is a core sector and it's a highly institutionalized core sector now as well. And that's the, uh, I suppose that brings with industrial becoming the core sector. What will happen to uh, um, retail is, as you, we discussed earlier, it's surprisingly it's bumped up. Um, what's happening on the office side of things? Yeah, office is, office is a bit more interesting, isn't it? If you look at mm. what's happened with office pricing, when we can say with industrial, it's yields getting sharper, retail, particularly in the 10 to $100 million space, yields are getting much sharper because they're like neighborhood centers are trading. Whereas office, it's hard to find any kind of yield compression, any any serious yield compression in, in any price sector, a price band. And I think it's because we, we are seeing offices trade at it around book value, some slight discounts, some slight increase. But the role that the office has in the future of workplaces, it's still being debated. So I don't think we're seeing much pricing change at the moment. And I don't believe that the, the office sector is dead or CBDs are dead or any of that hyperbole you, you read about left, right and centre these days. Yes. I think the office still has a, has a massive role to play in this space. But because people don't really know what role that is at the moment to a great degree, I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of reticence about dropping a billion dollars on, on an office asset, for example. Hmm. So pricing doesn't appear to be, to be moving much. It's a bit kind of flatlining. It's not really bouncing around too much, whereas the other sectors are either, you know, on average, retail, industrial, the, the pricing is going up. But even if you break them down into different types, you are seeing a bit of movement, some up, some down. In office, it's generally just a bit flat at the moment. Mm. So I still and- think office has a long way to go to for people to work out what's what's really happening in that space. And and people are going to have to bet on what's now the role the office has in the, again, in the future workplace. And it's something that I noticed in Melbourne in, in particular, as I was saying before about my percentages being enormous jumps because nothing really happened in um, in 2020. Yes. For the, for the Melbourne office market, sales are down on last year. Yes. I was a little surprised at. And I guess it's obviously Melbourne's had umpteen um, lockdowns and we don't really know it when, when we're going to come out of these lockdowns. But also there's so much supply coming into the Melbourne office space too. Yes. And given that people are unsure about the role offices will have, it appears to be a bit more reluctance to, mm-hmm. to drop money on, on office. So I think... Long and short of it, I think office, it's, it's up in the air what's going to happen to that sector. And that means that pricing doesn't particularly move around too much. And then you've got uh, your statistics show that Perth has gone up 330%. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to- told you those yep. percents are crazy, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Perth is far more of a cyclical market though as well. Mm-hmm. So it it's generally said to be counter-cyclical to to the other, to the East Coast markets. And COVID managed to do what nothing's ever done before and make Perth move in sync with the other markets last year, which was which was fun. Um, <laughs> but because it's still gone back, it has got now gone back to its cyclical nature. Whereas we see Perth go through spurts, you know, some years we have a lot of sales and the next year we have none. That mm. just seems to be how Perth works. And obviously AMP disposed of an asset there um, this year, rather sizable one, which meant that we saw volumes jump up in Perth. Right. So again, it's it's probably sitting around half a million, half a billion, sorry, dollars for the office sector in, in Perth, which you know compared to Sydney's three point five isn't a lot, but it's a lot for for a market where not a lot trades. And I think that's just what we're seeing this year is a bit more activity because more stuff is trading. 
don't necessarily know if it's COVID related or if it's Perth just back to being what Perth does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another interesting trend. And speaking of interesting trends, uh, is the statistics, all the statistics that you've got on alternative assets. Um, obviously, everyone loves talking about, you know, office, industrial, retail. But what we're seeing is uh, alternative assets are now mm. flavor of the month too. Absolutely. And it, mm. it's it's kind of speaks to what I was saying before about the price differentials between the three core sectors. There's basically none. There's no real price difference between the three anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you are in search of high yielding assets, then you do either have to move to to regional areas or subsectors, but also alternatives. And we're seeing a lot of that at the moment, particularly in spaces like childcare, massive boom in childcare assets, again, becoming a bit more institutionalized. Medical office, um, I put out a piece at the start of the year just because I noticed that because we changed our deal threshold, we were capturing a lot more medical office sales. Mm. I noticed that 2020 was actually the strongest year in our database for medical office sales. It boomed last year and it was being driven by the institutional side, the likes of Dexas, for example. Interesting. Yeah. Because that was always a space where privates really dominated, but it, yeah. now we're seeing more institutional investment going into that. And look, that makes perfect sense in any given, in, in any time period, because healthcare is always, we always need more healthcare. That's a simply, that's how humans are. We need more healthcare, <laughs> but, but given what's going on at the moment, Suddenly investors are twigging, okay, maybe this is a good place to get into a bit more medical office, a bit more R&D. So mm. we're seeing that sector become more institutionalized as well. And then you have the likes of service stations is a fascinating one for me because people go, why do you buy a petrol station? Like, well, what do petrol stations have on them? <laughs> These days, it's convenience retail. Yes. It's a Coles, it's a Woolies. And convenience retail is definitely the biggest success story that's come out of COVID. Those neighborhood shopping centers, the values those things have gone up by is enormous because it's convenience. We all have to shop locally, closer to mm. home. So service stations are really becoming on, um, on investors' radar as well, mostly, again, because of that convenience retail aspect. My, one of my favorites, though, is always the, it's the old stalwart of, um, of the Australian alternative sector. It is pubs. And it's, <laughs> it's almost getting to the stage where you should stop calling them alternative because it's such a, such a strong market. There's so much activity. And there's so much activity going on in the, in the pub sector at the moment as well. And I did yes. a little, little bit of analysis on how pubs performed. So if you look at the, the five main core sectors or five sectors, industrial pubs, retail, hotel, and office, um, changing volumes in 2020, obviously industrial, fine, number one. Then it was pubs. They only fell 20-odd percent, which compared yeah. to offices fall of 55. So pretty yes. good. And if you look at what's happened this year, as a percentage of total 2020 volumes, pubs are already at 90%. So they've already, they're probably surpassed by now. Yeah, And in terms of 2019 volumes, they're at 75%. And that's far and away better than any other sector, including industrial. So it's, it is. it's fascinating, isn't it? That, that <laughs> people are buying up pubs. I haven't seen the input side of the pub in what feels like years. And these aren't, <laughs> these aren't distressed sales either. These are you know investors taking a punt that there's going to be, I can only assume, a lot of revenge spending. They're all going to suddenly go down to the pub and you know spend five days on the bounce there, <laughs> buying, <laughs> buying 10 pints an hour or something. I don't know. But there's so much investment in the pub sector. It's, it is quite interesting for me. And that's a, again, we call it alternative, but I don't know. It's fast becoming mainstream. It really <laughs> is, isn't it? <laughs> well, you've got um, in the pub scene, you've got the, a lot of high profile, I suppose, hospitality operators now, you know, Byron Bay has seen huge pub deals. Yeah. Um, so it is an interesting thing. And I, I suppose one of the things I wanted to ask you was, is it because the investors are targeting pubs uh, because they've been priced out of office, retail, and, and industrial now. 
it's possible. It doesn't seem to be the same set of investors. The the pub investor pool seems mm-hmm. to be quite. I wouldn't call it niche because because then that I'm calling it alternative again. But it's certainly mm-hmm. it's a smaller subset, and it it's not that institutionalized as yet. It seems to be you know the Laundies, the Wars. They they seem to be the then obviously Merivale. They seem to be the, the biggest players in the market. Yeah, it's definitely them that's that's picking them up, as opposed to the likes of I don't know. Lend lease, for example, jumping into the pub scene. I'm not entirely sure they have. So yeah. it's it, it does seem to be the the a certain subsect of these core investors, as opposed to um, some of the other asset classes where we're seeing the likes of Dexas buy into the healthcare sector. It does appear to be just a, a, a smaller subset of investors. Whether or not that changes, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hasn't happened yet, and I think there's plenty of other alternatives that that um, institutional investors seem to be looking at before they target the pub scene. Now, I suppose this is a, a, another one. It's a in the field of medical and uh, and aged care <laughs> uh, is the aged care assets, uh, aged care and retirement. Um, where is that going? Uh, we've got population that continues to grow uh, mm. and demand more, um, but it's a kind of yes. Uh, institutional players come in then they leave then they uh, they come in again so what's happening in that space yeah it is an interesting one isn't it we, we do have on occasion investors get in and then get out mm. i'm not entirely sure why i guess these are these are businesses they're going concerned so they're a little bit different from your, your typical bricks and mortar retail I, I suppose it's quite specialist you need to know what you're doing but it is definitely one of those alternative asset classes that i do believe will become far more institutionalized in the years to come Mm. Um, and we saw an example of this this year, actually, I, I believe, was where Super picked up a 25% share in a Lendlease um, senior housing yes. fund. Mm. So that, again, it's, it's another alternative asset class that will see more investment because, like you rightly pointed out, it is a growing one. You know, people mm. are getting older, obviously. People are living longer. So there is a need for, for more of this, um, more of this cl- asset class. I think there's just some... This is a few barriers I think traditional real estate investors need to get around and need to understand how the, how the sector works before you start to see a, a mass investment. And I think you're going to see, if you are going to see a, a significant increase in investment, it's going to be the likes of part shares, you know, buying a share of a fund from a provider who knows already what they're doing and you're buying into that income stream. Possibly it could be a learning phase as well. You know, you pick up a couple of shares in a, in a few a few companies and you mm. learn how it all works before branching out onto your own. Not sure, but that's generally how these kinds of new asset classes develop. It's it's partnering up with an expert. I always use the example in in, in build to rent, for example. You don't you don't buy a hotel and then you know a three hundred room hotel and then run it by yourself, having no experience. You tend to get somebody in who knows what they're doing. Mm. So I think that's a that's a good way to to get into the sector. And yeah, I expect that that um, sector to really increase over the next five to ten years. And and yet follow the follow the trend of all the other core sectors and start off small and then become more and more institutionalized. Mm. And 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 you brought up built to rent. I that's. Uh, I just thought I'd do it for you because I know you were, you were about to ask it. I'm I sure was. I was. There's a lot of interest in built to rent. Yeah. Uh, I, I know. I don't know whether it's um, it, it's something you know you've got uh, opponents for it and supporters for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> opponents saying it 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 won't happen, and supporters are saying it's the next great asset class in Australia. So what is happening there in that space? Look, there's a lot of there's a lot happening at the moment. There are a lot of um, a lot of obstacles, of course. The to the opponents, I always say, look, it's the largest institutional asset class in the U.S. So mm-hmm. institutional investors hold more multifamily than they do any other core sector. So it's <laughs> it works in the number one market in the world. So it's, it's got there's got to be good things about it. Is that market very different? Absolutely, of course it is. And so we do have those challenges here, but it's still happening. There is still investment going on in the sector. We are seeing new companies 
look at the sector. We're seeing mm. the likes of um, Greystar, for example, you know, arguably one of the biggest in the world, certainly know what they're doing. They're down here with a few projects. They obviously think it works. There's a lot of investors down here that do believe the sector will work and there's a fair bit of activity. And interesting this year, we're actually seeing some of these projects um, finish construction as well, which is great to see. So I think once you can touch and feel these things, certainly what we saw in the, in the UK market is once people can touch and feel and realize this is just a much better way of, of, of renting, renting yes. from, a, from, a, from a company, you know, um, the people will start to, there'll be word of mouth. People will go, oh, these are great. And there'll be a bit more activity. And I think we'll start to see a bit more of a boom once some of these assets are built and once the word of mouth spreads and once people kind of understand the economic fundamentals of them, because at the end of the day, you're not going to get enormous capital growth out of these, these assets. That's kind of not what they're for. They're almost like a real hedge for your other property type. You know, it's a, it goes into a diversified portfolio because it's just rental income. It's just mm. residential. So you're not, it's not going to shoot the lights out. I, I know yields are probably around, you know, four, four and a quarter for some of these assets. Actually, these days it's pretty much the same for all the core sectors. Actually, but one's more. I'd say multifamily built rents far more. Um, it's less risky than the other asset classes because, in, in all kinds of economic time, people need places to live and they need mm. places to rent. And given the unaffordability that you see in Sydney in particular, there's always a need for more um, rental accommodation. And you know, if you can run that professionally, then I think there's going to be a, a huge, a huge market for it, huge demand for it. Mm. Um, and I just see more and more investors getting into it. And it's just a matter of, of understanding how the sector works. And yes, there are some tax impediments, sure, with the MRT issue, land tax, although there was a bit of a haircut on that, which is a welcome boost to the to the sector. These still are impediments. And I know we always said that um, if your development does not stack up for tax reasons, it's a pretty poor development and you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't do it in the first place. Mm. So they, they definitely are, uh, they definitely will hamper investment, but they shouldn't stop it. And a good good point of that is, the MIT situation where offshore investors have to pay 30% income tax as opposed to 15% if they mm. invested in office, that I'm sure has stopped some investors. But by my last count, more than 50% of deals that are under construction at the moment were being funded by offshore investors. So it hasn't stopped them. But Australia being a capital importer, mm. it won't boom until we get rid of some of these things. Okay, great. Let's take a short break. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players, and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. And I suppose with built-to-rent, and we we always use that word emerging asset class, and we've been using it for two, three years now. I think it's nascent. I used to use nascent all the time. And... It is coming overcoming that hurdle, the mentality that uh, the rental market is dominated by. Let's you know, face it, mums and dads, private mm-hmm. investors, and so it is. Yeah, changing that mentality to where you're renting from an institution, um, and I suppose that's the big challenge for a lot of people is that oh, I'm actually going to be renting in a office, not sorry, office <laughs> in, a, in, a, uh, in a in a in a tower or. Mm. a building and one of the interesting things was i was at a conference three years ago where someone stood up and said aren't built to rent off uh built to rent uh just sort of like ghettos <laughs> and the <Wow>. <laughs> and i thought see this is the misunderstanding that people have about the um the built to rent uh 
buildings where, you know, so they sort of see it, see it as like a, it's a commission housing or social housing type thing. And it's totally different from that. It's, you know, far yeah. from it. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's many forms at the end of the day, it's just residential. So you can have, mm. you can have small A affordable, big A affordable social housing or premium. It, you know, it's just residential. You can have whatever you as an investor decide if you want bells and whistles, then you'll need to be charging a premium. And yes. then it certainly won't become a slum. If you're just targeting key workers, which I, I firmly believe there's a need for targeting mm. key workers, you know, your policemen, your firemen, et cetera, where you offer, you know, rents at, yeah, yeah. rents at 80% of market rents or, or whatever, things like that. You can have that as well. There's a whole raft of ways you can do this. It depends entirely on what your investment um, mandate is. Mm. It's entirely up to you. So I don't think they, they're not going to turn into, into slums or anything like that. And not the experience in the US and the UK we've seen. No, <laughs> certainly not. That. Certainly not in the UK because it's a mm. brand new sector. So you're not gonna you're mm. not gonna get a sector off the ground by building slums or whatever. And mm. I think people also that they don't necessarily know that it's not all high rises. So in the yes. US, seventy percent of multifamily is three stories and below. Mm. So it's not all high rises. It just happens in Australia. That's what we're doing because we have land constraints in our small in our large cities, but they're quite landlocked. Yes. You know, we've got issues. So it's easy to build up, of course. So that's just how the first generation of these things, these these um, built terrain assets are developing as towers. Mm. Whether or not that continues to be that way, you know, I don't necessarily think so. We could go the more the US way or even the UK way where it is a lot of townhouses. Just at the moment, it happens to be units. That's yes. it. It could be so sort of like a master plan community of built terrain. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, yeah. there's mm. many ways. And I think mm. again, people think it's this, this big bad scary asset class. Like, look, at the end of the day, it's just residential. It's just <laughs> it's just renting. It's just giving people a place to live with a bit more security. And mm. if your oven breaks down and doesn't take you two weeks to get a replacement, you just go down to the basement, pick up another one, they'll install it for you and get the other one fixed. Mm. So there's always there's always spare parts lying around. If you look at some of the grey style buildings in in London, they have dedicated storerooms at the bottom where there's fridges, ovens, microwaves, whatever, just mm. in case something breaks down. And if it does break down, you let the concierge know, they go and they change it and then they get it fixed. It's it's seamless. Of course, it's not foolproof. There's always going to be issues, yes. naturally. But it's it's the offering of a convenience. And yes. that's what we're seeing at the moment in a retail space. It's pricing that convenience aspect of it. Mm. And again, I always say, look, it's the biggest asset class in the biggest market in the world. It can't not work. It just might work differently. Yeah, yes. that's all. <laughs> so I guess now that that brings us to, I mean, we've been talking about built to rent. So what are the developers up to in, in in other sectors in built to rent? What are we seeing? Yeah, so unfortunately, I can't really track built to rent too much anymore mm. because we don't see any transactions, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, but we do see constru- we do have construction records as well, so we can see yes. there's a fair amount of construction activity. Um, and I think there's about forty five projects at the moment that I can think of institutional mm-hmm. projects at the moment in built to rent. Um, it's something like 15, 20,000 units. So we're getting there. We're slowly getting there. Some yes. of them will complete this year. Some of them completed at the end of last year, such as Murvac down at um, Olympic Park. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing a bit of activity in that space, which is good to see. In terms of others, um, office sector, you know, we have had a bit of a mini supply boom in the likes of Sydney and Melbourne over the last couple of years. Melbourne, most of that stuff has completed, but there's still a fair bit more in the pipeline, which is why I think, Owners, uh, sorry, investors are a bit more reticent to buy into the Melbourne market just because there's uncertainty of this future of the sector and there's a lot of supply coming into the market. So a little bit concerned there. Sydney as well, we have a fair amount of supply coming into this into the market. Uh, I think 2022 is supposed to be our big year with the likes of 
CQT and QQT or whatever they are these days, Salesforce Tower and AMP Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're due to complete in 2022. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't fully complete just because of the, the obvious supply chain issues that the whole world's having at the moment, trying to get stuff in. So if they're slightly delayed, I wouldn't be too surprised. But there's a couple of other large buildings in Sydney as well, Martin Place South Tower, North Sydney. We've also got Victoria Cross, the, the building that's being um, constructed above the, the uh, train station there. So there still is a fair amount of activity underway. Mm. There doesn't appear to be an awful lot of DAs being fl- flying around at the moment for, for big office buildings. And again, I think that's just a little bit of uncertainty about what the, what the future holds for the sector. Um, retail, we, we I haven't looked at retail numbers in too much depth because we don't generally see a lot of retail being built in Australia. We're quite, there's certain rules around how much you can um, construct. Yes. But I do actually want to look at, and it's something I've been quickly doing the last couple of days, because we're seeing this move to, um, you know, Sydney City Council, for example, wants this three CBD plan, and there's a lot of chatter about, you know, the living and working within 30 minutes of each other. We're seeing this sort of mini cities um, development plans all over the place. We've seen a lot more suburban office acquisitions than we have in, in, in the past. So again, it's a trend that COVID seems to have accelerated. The last sort of three, four years, we've seen a lot of activity in those suburban markets. Yes. Um, a lot of uh, investors buying up offices there. I expect that we'll start to see retail being built around these office areas as well. Mm. Because, I mean, that's why we have so much CBD retail as well, of course, because you have all these CBD workers going there and they'll obviously go out and buy things. But if those workers are no longer in the CBD, they're in more suburban markets, then let's put retail in those suburban markets and take advantage Absolutely. of that. Yeah. So I think we'll start to see a bit more of that. Industrial is always a hard one because, again, that's why we generally don't see big increases in rents in industrial because at the end of the day, everything in economics falls back to supply and demand. With industrial, you generally don't have that big supply and demand imbalance because if you need something, you just build it and six months is done. It doesn't take mm. you two years to get a DA approved <laughs> no, and then another, another three years to build the thing. It's pretty, it's pretty quick. So there's, there's a little bit of speculation, uh, speculative development out there um, for industrial. But I suppose the most interesting thing about the industrial development space is this whole multi, multi-story multi buildings. We don't have a lot of them in Australia. I don't think we have any of note mm. yet in Australia. We're not Amazon's building one out in Western Sydney, I think it is. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting trend is how much multi-story warehousing we, we see on the development side for, for industrial. And another thing for industrial that's emerging, oh, I keep using emerging, <laughs> is <laughs> data centers. Uh, yeah. you know, we all want to be watching Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these things, and yep. we need data centers. That's true. Mm. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, that and that we def- haven't seen a lot of, I suppose, institutions go into it yet, but I tuned into Lendlease's uh, strategic mm. briefing yesterday. And they have now identified data centers as the next uh, the next asset class they're going to be moving into. So, yeah, definitely, we saw a couple of big ones in 2020, a couple mm. of Telstra ones, and I think we'll continue to see that as well. And it's um yeah, look, it's a booming sector. We all need more. We all need more data centers. Um, be it they stand alone in the industrial, or mm. be they in in office buildings as well. We have so we have to classify it as an office or industrial on our platform because we do have flaws of data mm-hmm. centers that do occasionally trade in offices, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, but yeah, it's definitely going to be a booming sector. And again, like you said, it'll become far more institutionalized as well. Mm. It's one of those ones that's also um, unlikely to ever be dominated or even see any offshore investment 
because I, I'm not entirely sure, and I can't remember the wording on, in FERB rules, but national security is always a reason for them to reject something. Yes. And I think holding all of our data warehouses, I think that does fall under a problem for national security. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like it's going to be a market that can be purely dominated by domestic players, mm. which is interesting because they don't have that because they have competition across all other asset classes. You know, Most years, 30% of, of acquisitions are, are done by offshore players. But it'd be interesting to see if they can do that in the in the data center where in the data center um area as well. You know, now that we're looking to wrap up, um, if you were an investor and had five hundred million, why do people always ask this question? <laughs> I don't have five hundred million dollars to give you, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I wish I did. Uh, but if you had it, where would you be investing in the next uh, twelve months? Ah, uh, I don't know. Really, there's there's a few places. Um, I don't think you can go wrong with Office CBD if you're looking at a long-term investment. Whether or not I'd buy one now, hmm, up for debate. But I'd definitely look at pockets. There are there are certainly pockets of outperformance out there. Neighbourhood shopping centres are, are great. Look what Homeco's been doing the last few years. I'd put money in them because I just think they're going to continue to 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 grow. Again, mm. people have got used to just having a just going to their local grocery store as opposed to going to a bigger one. You kind of get you kind of get into these new trends. Mm. Um, so I certainly think that's going to be a, a, a good space is convenience retail for sure. Um, me personally, I will invest in built to rent because um, <laughs> I've been banging on about the sector for the last few years saying it's great. Get in there. It's great. It's definitely good. Get in there. <laughs> so I, need, I'll put, I have to put my money where my mouth is. Yes. Um, but also medical. I think the healthcare sector is going to continue to boom. But also the, mm. the, sorry, the R&D side as well. So that whole life sciences thing, um, yes. look what's happening in Macquarie Park. You know, there's a lot of R&D going on in there. There's a hospital attached to it. You know, I'd put offices there as well. I'd buy into that and also I'd put some retail there. So rather than just looking at specific sectors, I think I'd look at pockets of what's happening in certain areas. Mm. And like Mac Park, that life sciences stuff, I'd look at that for sure. Similar to Westmead, same kind of, same kind of deal there. Mm. I think we're going to see a lot more activity in that whole life sciences space because that's it's really brought it to the to the front of people's minds at the moment. You know yes. what's been going on in Australia. We've had what floods, floods, fires, pandemics. You know <laughs> the horsemen they're they're coming around the corner. So they, I mean everything's happening at the moment. So it's it's in that sort of life sciences area. I think we'll see a, a big a big boom over the next few years. Mm. Interesting. How about Interesting. you? I put you on Me? the spot. What do you oh, reckon? I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> well, that's what exactly. That's why I'm throwing it at you. You, are, you ask me. <laughs> Although it's quite funny because I've written about it and um, I did a presentation oh about a year or so ago to some Asian investors, and um, and then they said, "Well, why aren't you buying these things?" And I said, "I said that's a good point. <laughs> why aren't I making money?" <laughs> um, I would have to go with uh, data centers, and mm. uh, I just think you know, with more people tuning into uh, Netflix and Amazon and online shopping, and um, it's one of those things that uh, more people. With 5G coming, um, mm. and you're just not going to need more data. And as more people use the computers and universities tune into uh, more remote learning, um, yeah, we're definitely going to go data centers. Yeah. Um, and what else would I buy? Hard to say. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> would. Actually, we, we didn't touch on hotels uh, in this discussion, um, but I don't think I would be tapping into that right now. Uh, but data centers is up there for me. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I agree. I think it's <laughs> it's definitely in that alternative space. 
that's we're seeing the most most interest and most most yeah. progression and it is in the likes of yeah data centers service stations healthcare it's they're going to be definitely going to become far more institutionalized and what that means is prices will go up as well. So, yeah, it's a pretty good investment. Yeah. And maybe pubs, like one or two, so I can go and grab free drinks. Oh, look, I, everybody <laughs> wants to own their own pub, don't they? Yes. Into the, into the backyard, and, you know, you have, your, have your friends around and have a nice pub. Yeah. I was going to say, come on, Ben, let's go and have a chat down the pub that I own. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then you can pay for the drinks. Oh, I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, you see? So there you go. Uh, spare change and free drinks. So there you go. You save, <laughs> save money. Well... <laughs> It's been a pleasure having you on APJ's Talking Property, uh, Ben, and uh, we hope to have you back soon. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Thank you for this. It was, it was good fun. <laughs>